99.9 Bangor, and all over the world at weru.org. A healthy choice. Just a few minutes before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Boat Talk is a uh, call-in show for people contemplating things naval. It's a tied and true show that's been on WERU for many years now. People uh, calling in and having all sorts of questions, comments, or whatever about uh, anything marine-related with your rusty anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague. Today we do have a whole variety of things to talk about. I'm going to just jump right into it. We're going to start with the Boat Talk Cruise, the annual Boat Talk Cruise is coming up. There has never been a bad Boat Talk Cruise. It's not even possible. It's partly about the boat, partly about the water it floats in, and then there's the people. You know, uh, what left out the food and drink. Right, I was going to say. Yeah, free too. kids. I mean, it's just a fantasy, basically. Yeah. And uh, Saturday, it's the 23rd of June, isn't it, Alan? It is the 23rd. It's going to be the longest daylight Saturday of the year. Lovely. And uh, our friends, Bar Harbor Boat Company, uh, the Allen Brothers. Uh, Bar kind- Harbor Cruises. Bar Harbor Cruises uh, kindly lend us their boat, the Sea Princess. Uh, runs out of Northeast Harbor, and uh, Sea Princess is um, a uh, stretched lobster boat, think of, and it has a roof over it and side curtains. Uh, it does not matter if it's raining, foggy, splashy, cold, uh, none of them things will stop us, yep. uh, basically, It's warm and sunny, we roll up the cover, too, and yep. go, uh, go uh, semi-convertible. Yep. Uh, if it's foggy, for instance, uh, it brings the... Uh, it just makes a different watercolor painting that we're uh, tripping through there and, and brings it all a little closer, focus in. And, again, it can't possibly be messed up. It's potluck. It is potluck. Yeah, great great food shows up, too. We always uh, exchange recipes with some people who get uh, pretty creative food-wise. Once again, the boat is uh, just as perfect as it could be sea princess has an engine box that is kind of stretched too and uh man we fill that thing with the potluck and it's in the middle of the boat and it's just perfect everybody walks around and yeah picks and chooses. um byob uh kids under 12 are free uh we 12 may, and under tw- 12 and under yes uh we may uh put them to work driving the boat if uh you know they look like they're uh uh, not behaving or, or could be uh, put to work. Right. Don't even need a driver's license. No. Nope. And, uh, again, uh, Sea Princess, just a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing that they uh, lend us this uh, boat. Tickets are only $20 for a, a sunset cruise. 
as we like to say, a three-hour cruise, and we'll bring you back um, out of uh, Northeast Harbor up, uh, as Alan says, Maine's former fjord. Yep, that's going to be a story probably that will come up on the cruise. Yep, uh, some sound. Uh, run around what we call the Great Harbor of Mount Desert Island, which is the uh, southern bite, uh, northeast, uh, southwest. Uh, oh, uh, the cranberries, uh, you know, uh, like I say, all uh, Sutton Island. Uh, Coast Guard Station. Yep. Uh, it is. Uh, again, uh, did we mention the people? We filled the boat up with, what's it take, about 50, 50 odd people? We stop it. 50 seats. Takes so, 50 regular it, people or 50-odd people. It'll hold a lot, few more, but then we kind of start losing space for food. So. Yeah. And, uh, again, uh, there's no strangers on the Boat Talk boat. Uh, and uh, it's, it's um, like I say, good to just sit and look. It's uh, good to sit and mingle, uh, run around, uh, talk to people, tell stories. It's kind of musical chairs, too, because where you start out sitting is not usually where you end up sitting yeah. and talking to all kinds of different people. And a uh, uh, fairly reliable fundraiser for this radio station. They smile at us because basically we've never not filled the boat up. And uh, like I say, uh, they're nice enough to lend us the boat. And uh, we also have a uh, kind of a nice policy, too, which, uh, again, one thing I've learned in the boat world, uh, when you have a boat problem, especially with somebody else's boat, and you need help, you need to help people help you. So we put out a tip jar for yeah. the boat for uh, try to cover their fuel and uh, some of their expenses, and, and they smile back at us, and yeah. like I say, the whole thing works. Price of fuel is going up. That's true. And, uh, yes, it's uh, we do. A lot of people are very generous with the tip jars, so it ends up being a fairly happy experience for yeah. Bar Harbor Cruises, too. Good food, good scenery, good company, uh, like I say, uh, and a good way to support this here community radio station, the Boat Talk Cruise. Give us a call here at the station anytime. Susan will sign you up. 469-6600 is the office line. You can try info at weru.org, I believe. We'll uh, uh, get you there on the web, too. And uh, once again, uh, Saturday, uh, longest Saturday of the year, the 23rd, 23rd of June. Leaving at 6.15. Yes, sure. don't so be late it. for the boat. You can't be late for the boat. We'll wave to you. <laughs> yeah, uh, again, uh, Boat Talk Cruise. Uh, so we did mention the Coast Guard that we'd be cruising by. There's another little Coast Guard item we we're going to talk about. It appears that there is um, somebody who is stealing the... Uh, are they brass or bronze bells that are on the bell buoys around the coast of Maine? I would think bronze, personally. I would think bronze, yeah. too. But, um, Step up from brass. The radio, yeah, the, the newspaper, newspaper article I have says uh, brass, but I, I, I'm guessing bronze. But either way, it gets you know $3 a pound or so for scrap metal, and those things uh, probably weigh even 20, 30 pounds with a bell and clapper. Somebody's cut the bell and clappers off of half a dozen... Buoys. Uh, yeah, up and down the coast, yes, which makes, um, as you said, it's probably not one person that's doing it, all these different ranges, which goes to the pun. Harpswell uh, and off of Bar Harbor as well. So, yeah. again, possibly not the same fella. No. Um, hard to they, – they say they're checking uh, antique dealers and frisking them for, uh, you know, yeah. uh, hard to disguise uh, a marine uh, buoy bell clapper, but they're meltable. 
They are metal, and I'm, I'm sure they're checking the scrap metal buyers too to see uh, what they're bringing in there also. But bronze melts very nicely, and um, a friend, uh, U.S. Bells, for instance, makes bronze. Well, bells. I don't think he's making from these. No, no, um, be no uh, profit and uh, like say no glory in, in the uh, uh, provenance of the metal. You couldn't brag yeah. about it. So, so what anyway, a bit of that, yeah, yeah, the the. the uh, the gist of this little diatribe is that if anybody does happen to see some uh, Coast Guard bells or clappers in somebody's collection or for sale or something, where you should uh, notify the Coast Guard. Alan, I like to point out it's a wonderful age to be a mariner because of the GPS machine. Uh-huh. You always know where you are, basically, uh, allegedly. Uh, you're supposed to anyway. The moan of a foghorn, the uh, which are now not all automatic either. On lighthouse stations now, they have a program where uh, the automatic foghorns are not all automatic. You can cue them with right. your VHF radio if you're wondering and curious. Yep, you have to turn them on. Actually, some of them, they won't turn on unless you call them. So that it doesn't bother the neighbors when, when you're not worrying about it, you know, yeah. but... But the moan of a foghorn, the clap of a bell, the loom of a lighthouse, them things are all still work, although becoming a little anachronistic, you know. Yeah. Uh, never truly go out of, of style, though, because uh, when you're out on the water, doubt is the hugest killer. And more clues as possible is, is uh, always right. welcome, yeah. You're relying on just your cell phone is probably not a real good idea. Yeah. Oh, uh, again, we're doing boat talks morning. We got a bunch of stuff thrown in the hopper. We'll be talking to uh, uh, Zach Cliver in a little bit. Uh, we hope, and uh, oh, uh, we will touch the uh, we've got good news and bad news on the global warming front this uh, month. And uh, you know, we can talk to you anytime. Uh, it is launching season. It is uh, fix 'em up uh, season. You know, and if you've got any questions about. Uh, Boats in general. Um, yep. Give us a call. The number is one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight, And we have Yo on the phone. Good morning, Captain Yo. Oop. Yo, you there? Hello. Oh, God. Yeah, there you are. Yes, I have a few comments about uh, electronic navigation. Uh. Personally, I haven't invested in that kind of equipment myself. So my experience with it on other vessels is that it makes it really easy to become complacent about both position and collision avoidance. And my observation is that navigating by a screen distracts you from keeping a good lookout. And uh, another point, I've been having a damn hard time getting my emails because of something going on. And... <clears throat> I can foresee that happening to a navigational device in the boat as well. And quite aside from just the uh, hazards of the marine environment, the likelihood of some kind of a power outage, whether it's due to a low battery or a thermonuclear explosion or something in between, then if you don't know how to recognize your landmarks, if there aren't visual and audio aids and if if there isn't some kind of way for you to know your way about when the thing goes down and people don't know how to use them then it's going to be just like christopher columbus on these shores again 
you're going to have to send out your dinghy with a sounding line before you drop your anchor. So that's just the way it sounds to me. And I know it's it's great to follow your course on a plotter. It makes it really easy. But the TV attracts your eyes away from a proper lookout. Thank you for putting on this program. And thank you to everyone for being Community Radio. Yo, hold on a minute. We got the um, uh, GPS, but uh, you need to realize there's the perfect backup for the GPS, too. If it fails, you pull out your iPhone. <laughs> you can navigate anywhere in the world with an iPhone nowadays. Did uh, Tugboats, Penobscot, and Seguin from Gloucester to Canaveral, uh, Florida, uh. basically on an iPhone uh, iNav program. Mm. Um, a little tongue-in-cheek here, buddy. You don't have any electronic navigation on your on your boat? Well, I consider that a little disingenuous. You don't suppose that electronic devices will all go down at once? Oh, and uh, I'm glad you caught me being tongue-in-cheek there. So, so you know. Because when this stuff goes down, it's all going to go down. I mean, they're working on anti-satellite weapons, for one thing, and the satellites are crashing into each other even without weapons. Not to mention solar flares, too. Solar flares and the space junk. And there was a there was a meteor that exploded on security camera the other day. I can't wait to see it. But that kind of thing is going to happen. Yeah. And if you don't know how to navigate without a screen, you're going to be on a ledge somewhere. Yo, used to have a uh, Mason 44 with a, um, a Learjet tender, and that fellow had uh, one of the first computer navigating systems and uh, one of the first uh, laptops I ever saw. I used to email it uh, or uh, overnight it to me when I needed to move the boat, and I couldn't figure out how to turn it on and get it going. Um, and then when we did, the thing was, um, do not drive the boat like this is a video game. Don't try to move the icon, which is what people invariably tend to do you know uh stick to your right stick their head in the screen and and concentrate on what the icon is doing instead of the boat you are correct about that we had a boat talk about two or three years ago with ben ellison where we talked about spoofing where some hackers are actually having uh, somehow uh, intercepting gps signals and uh, redirecting people to wrong places Happened in, the, happened in the Black Sea. Uh, I'm trying to imagine what, but again, wreckers have always there have always been wreckers putting up false lights to bring the vessel under your shore so you can uh, uh, take the cargo and keep it in your cellar. All you know, uh, another form of that, I would guess. But uh, again, if they can, I guess they will. So, but still, great age to be a mariner while the thing is working. Gosh, bless it. So that's all I say. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Oak Talk this morning and open to, uh, like I say, um, uh, urinautical issues, yeah. let alone the ones we can Have think you up. seen the pictures of the uh, latest aircraft carrier the Na- Navy has made? It's huge, the Gerald R. Ford. It's very, very large aircraft carrier. I know you've been on them, and they are large anyway. But um, you know how they're made nowadays? Tell me. They're printed. 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 The sections of the... The aircraft carrier are printed by must must be an amazingly huge, <laughs> massive printer that spits out this metal. Uh, I'm trying. Well, uh, they make you can make anything uh, prosthetics. Yeah. Uh, for instance. Yeah. Uh, why not a boat? I suppose. 
Um, is it made out of uh, we print print uh, and we don't have print on paper? I assume it's some kind of metal, I and don't then know. paper mache it sort of to uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so. Just trying to imagine. Yeah. So anyway, let's change the subject and please go to, go to herring right now. We have our friend Zach Cliver on the phone. We're going to be talking about Amendment Eight, I believe it is, or maybe it's eighteen. 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 Okay. Good morning, Zach. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hey, good morning. How are you? Oh, we're good. We're good. I'm going to let you just lay down the groundwork about uh, what's current right now with the hearing hearings. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's been a um, uh, effort to revise the hearing fish management plan. It's been ongoing for a number of years. This really started out of a lot of us uh, that have been paying attention to this fishery for a long time, speaking out about the importance of managing it for. Uh, the long term, um, have you know, continuing to check the larger boats that are in the herring fishery um, that are known as midwater and pear trawls. Uh, these are boats that are um, often over a hundred feet long that can carry as much as a, as a million pounds of fish and use nets the size of a football field and tow them through the ocean day and night, uh, catching. Uh, herring, and we have had a long uh, concern about the, their impact. Uh, it's more of a kind of industrial scale fishing, and so we have been advocating for a long time about uh, keeping checks on them, and really um, also really focused on on addressing the bycatch issue around what kind of bycatch they have, and that's that's not really so much a part of this amendment that was taken up separately. But um, this, this amendment does address uh, the areas where midwater trawl vessels can fish, so there are some alternatives that are available for people to speak in favor of. Uh, for example, right now there's a seasonal ban on midwater and paratrawl fishing from June 1st to the end of September in Area 1A. 1A extends from Eastport, Maine to Provincetown, Massachusetts and out to 50 miles. And so now uh, only purse-sane herring fishing vessels are allowed to fish within that area during that time. And this, this uh, amendment proposes uh, as, an, as an alternative, as an option to extend that prohibition on midwater trawl gear um, to a year-round prohibition. Now, uh, when we went through this uh, with Amendment 1 to get the initial seasonal closure, the, the main um, Lobstermen's Association at that time um, took the stance. They, their board voted unanimously uh, 12-0 in favor of banning midwater trawl gear year-round within the entire Gulf of Maine. So uh, the, the lobster fishing industry has, has um, uh, historically, a lot of the fishermen have been supportive of of the idea of having a strong purse-sane fishery uh, where there's less bycatch, less waste, less um, conflict with gear, with, with, the, with the boats um, interacting with their fishing gear, the lobster gear, um, getting caught up in it. Uh, so we're, we're uh, personally, um, the group that I'm part of, which is CHOIR, with the Coalition for Hearing's Orderly, Informed, Responsible, Long-Term Development, um, we are in favor of alternative three, which would which would um, make that a year-round closure. 
Uh, also, there's options for extending that that kind of buffer zone against this heavy industrial fishing uh, south of Provincetown all the way down to um, the, the uh, southern Connecticut border. So there's different options for different um, alternatives from 12 miles out to 50 miles, uh, creating a buffer zone on the backside of the Cape. And a lot of fishermen, a lot of recreational fishermen, ground fishermen, tuna fishermen have really spoken out about the importance of that, that um, those herring that are close to shore um, sustain those fisheries. And they um, have had a lot of conflict with midwater boats showing up and impacting herring, taking taking a lot and and what we what we've been called local or have been calling localized depletion, where they really take a lot of fish quickly and impact other fisheries and other um, you know eco tour businesses, whale watching, other other um, stakeholders. And then the, the the other big part of this amendment um, is. Uh, an effort to create a control rule. Uh, there's different metrics that are used to manage herring, and one of them is is called the allowable biological catch, which is ABC. And we went through, a lot of us uh, that are stakeholders, including the midwater industry, participated in two workshops that were two days. Uh, a lot of the council members, New England Fish Management Council members were involved, and uh, this was a management strategy evaluation. It was an idea to get us all together and talk about all kind of all the kind of um, metrics that would go into a a model that would res- create a sustainable herring fishery that would result in accounting for forage and ecosystem needs first. Um, that would that would produce more optimal yield, so there'd be less fluctuation. There'd be a more stable. That's that's the goal. Is you create a control rule, so when the when the catch gets to a certain level, given the stock status, that the rule rule checks and says, okay, you're gonna you're gonna stop fishing or slow down fishing. Uh, so that um, that is also spelled out, and and the place to go is is New England Fish Management Council uh, to their website and just just click on hearing, and you can see all the information there. Um, it's not it's not too overwhelming. There's a 27 page uh, document for public hearing that you can you can look through and you can you can make uh, you can pick uh, which things that you'd be interested in supporting. And uh, the deadline is the 25th of June at uh, 5 p.m. And you can also send uh, an email if you'd like to just submit comments. Um, you can do that at comments at nefmc.org. Uh, this is it's really important, and in, and the, la- the last thing I'd like to say quickly is just we just found out they're doing a benchmark uh, assessment uh, of the stock status, and we just found out that uh, the science is suggesting that the stock is in trouble, and so we all depend so so many of us um, depend on herring as an important part of the ecosystem. We really, uh, it's really a crucial time for people to be involved and and speak out with the idea that the stock is going down. You know, lobster fishermen need bait. Lots of um, fisheries depend on herring. Where, uh, my industry, whale watching, depends on herring uh, here. I mean, we're very, the whales are, are here, the herring are here. So uh, it's important for, for the public to be involved and to, to speak 
out, and I encourage uh, anyone to do that. And feel, anyone can feel free to call me um, if they'd like uh, at Bar Harbor Whale Watch. You can reach me, and I'm happy to talk uh, as well. Uh, Zach Cliver, you uh, surprised me. Uh, I like like the part about the uh, ecological implications of heron, but uh, the economic uh, interpersonal implications. Uh, you surprised me when you say the uh, fishermen are against uh, midwater trawls. Uh, fishermen don't have enough herring. Yeah, uh, you know that's the that's the thing is that. Um, uh, I think uh, many of the lobster fishermen understand that they can do with less herring in some years, and I know it's a it's a struggle right now. But if you have a, if you have a fishery with technology that potentially is wasting resource, and this is the this is the argument we've been making for a long time. When you're when you're fishing with a midwater net, you're pulling a giant net through the ocean at four knots, and after an hour or two of towing, you they bring the, the net up. And, and virtually everything in there is dead. Now, if there's spawning fish that you're not allowed to catch, you got to put them back. If you took too much fish and you don't have enough room to hold them, you got to dump them. Uh, if there's other types of fish, if there's marine mammals, uh, they have they have shown repeatedly that this, this technology is able to kill pilot whales, dolphins, seals. Uh, uh, you I know, believe even tur- turtles have shown up. Tur- Turtles. I mean, it's it's indiscriminate, you know. And if you're pulling a huge net through the ocean that fast at night, uh, it, it's not healthy for the environment. So, I think the lobster, a lot of the lobstermen understand we'd rather have a fishing technology that was less low impact, like their fishery. You know, the lobster industry, we're able to pick and choose uh, lobsters and and manage it in a very personal way, and it's it, that's one of the great strengths of it. So. Um, that you know, we we don't want we want to have a healthy, um, abundant herring resource, so that there is plenty of bait uh, for fishermen. The other uh, uh, thing about bait, uh, Zach, is it's wicked expensive too. It mm. is the main uh, expense of uh, bait and fuel. Uh, uh, bait can run uh, uh, four or five hundred dollars a day. Uh, you know, on an active fisherman. Uh, yep. Think about that sometimes. Uh, interesting, uh, like say, selective cut instead of a clear cut. That's good. Uh, I noticed that uh, uh, the herring fishery is uh, one of the top three in the uh, state of Maine after lobsters brought in uh, $19 million last year. Uh, summer before fall, before last, I was down in Nova Scotia looking for a fuel filter so we could sail back here, and a uh, retired Coast Guard captain took us on a tour of the waterfront while they were fitting out for their herring season. And the Canadians make $40 million at herring. And I'm telling you what, those boys couldn't have wider boats. Um, And they're all driving big new trucks, and it looked very, very prosperous. Um, um, Is this uh, involving across? It's got to be involving our friends across the border, too. Yeah, absolutely. There is a there is an effort to to manage the fishery in a trans transboundary way. There's an annual, you know, a, a reg, not annual but regular meeting between scientists and managers um, because of the, a lot of the herring resource uh, that goes across the borders. And uh, right now, uh, the, the Canadians one one of the things in that that is uh, helps them is that they don't allow midwater trawling. They they, they they banned it completely, so they're, they're 
only using persanes, which you can, if you, if, you, if you net up a school of herring and it has spawn and you don't want to take, you're not allowed to take the spawning fish, you can just open up the net and let them go. Um, you know, it's not, it's not that it can't have bycatch, but there's a lot, there's a lot you can do to avoid a lot of bycatch and a lot of waste. So if you catch too many fish, you can take some and then put the rest back. You can open up the net and let them out. Yeah, and persainer um, boats are much smaller too, so it's a, a more yeah. of a local activity than the massive ships. Yeah. yeah. Zach, you mentioned uh, your regular life uh, in the whale watching industry, uh, Bar Harbor yeah. uh, uh, Whale Watch, correct? And um, yeah. what's uh, what's the outlook for the whale season? Well, you may, we, you, uh, some, some may know, you may, uh, I think we, we talked about it, that we had a, a pretty tough year last year. Our sightings were way down, and we felt that that was in relation to bigger climatic um, patterns that were are playing out now with warming and, you know, fresh water coming into the Gulf of Maine and water, the current speeding up and um, the lack of Calanus copopods, which the herring depend on, right, so uh, and krill, so the very primary production of the Gulf of Maine, I think, was reduced in our area. So we had to search a lot, and um, so far we've had we started out with a. With a it's been it's been a, a much better start for us this year. We have made a couple trips down to Outer Fall, and we had success seeing humpbacks there. So that's a pretty long run for us. It's about. 60 miles from Bar Harbor, hmm. but then we've recently been going up towards uh, Jonesport and out towards uh, Gramanan Banks, and we've had a lot of sightings of uh, humpbacks, finbacks, and minkies, and uh, it's great to see finbacks because last year we only had five sightings the whole season, so we've already had um, uh, a number of trips with, with um, big groups of finbacks, and uh, we also, uh, the other day, uh, the trip that I was on, on uh, Thursday, we had a, po- a small pod of white-beaked dolphins, which are more of a northern species up around Newfoundland, and uh, that was a pretty a pretty neat sighting. It's not a common sighting. It used to be more here in the Gulf of Maine in the 70s, uh, more reports, but um, they uh, uh, that that was a that was a fun sighting. I'm not sure if they were. You know that uh, if they're going to stay around, but they there was a small group that were that were um, just over the Hague line. Man, too bad we couldn't see through the water like we could see birds in the sky, Zach. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. Oh, uh, excellent. Um, like say, the outlook for herring, I noticed uh, uh, looking into this, the herring map sort of uh, to me monitor uh, mirrors the uh, lobster habitat map. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't go yeah. that far south. Yeah. Uh, they are trending north, uh, you know. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, again, uh, um, all connected in the web of ecology, uh, let alone the human uh, web of economy ecology, you know. Yeah. yeah. Just to make yeah. it more uh, more confusing, uh, everything's changing, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Zach, good to talk to you this morning. Great. Thank you so much. So, yes, thank you, Zach. And, again, the the website for anybody who would like to make comment is nefmc.org. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Thank you very much, Zach. Yeah. We are doing boat talk this morning. You can give us a call about any time. Talk about uh, little fishes or big boats or, uh, you know, 
anything in between. I have been um, diligently working at the boattalk.org website, putting a, a few. You're, <laughs> I said diligently. You're the best half of the computer effort in this partnership. Yeah, thank you. No, there's only about three things in there, but they're, they're I think, interesting. One of them is a, um, I guess we call it a, a final. Uh, made for the general public report on the El Faro sinking. I think it's like 17 mm. pages or so, but lots of pictures and diagrams and that sort of stuff. But anybody who is still uh, interested in uh, just what went on with that, there's a, a website or a, what do you call it, a link to the, the El Faro report. I run into a uh, remarkable book at the library end last week um, and grabbed it right away. And uh, we're going to have to pursue this in future Boat Talk episodes. Uh, this is brand new. It's called The Last Lobster. Boomer bust for Maine's greatest fishery, question mark, Christopher White. Christopher White, uh, his book before this was about the end of the skipjack fishery down in the uh, Chesapeake. He where, seems to be kind of a doomsday kind where of Where he's more from than Maine. Um, he went touring Maine looking for uh, the great uh, unaffected lobster port in Maine that would be um, uh, not touristy and authentic. And, uh, you know, he ended up in Stonington. And uh, yeah, this is a uh, pretty good book. And uh, from the acknowledgments here, he says uh, dozens of people, often in, in bewilderment, have asked why write a book about Maine lobstermen. The long answer can be found in the pages of this book. The short answer is, what a perfect way to spend time with some of the most genuine and fascinating people in the world. I traveled to Maine with an open mind, eyes, and ears. As serendipity would have it, on my first visit to Stonington, I met Frank Gottwalds and Julie Eaton, around whom the story revolves. Patriarch of the east side of the harbor and matriarch of the west. <laughs> Shortly after, Frank introduced me to his stepson, Jason McDonald, who was wise beyond his years, and I'm indebted to the three who welcomed me into their boats and their homes and their lives. And uh, summer of 2016, this uh, Michael White fellow showed up in Stonington, spent the summer, We'll have, to, we'll have to get back to that in more depth All right. now. But we do have uh, two phone calls. Let's go to Please. Catherine in Appleton first. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, hi. I'm just wondering if any agency is keeping tabs on, I guess it's the drag netting that uh, Zach was talking about, um, and how much plastic and other junk is being uh, caught in those nets, and then what do they do with it? Um, are they under any... You know, anyway, that's my question. So, just wondering, because you, you you go on Facebook or the internet and you just see these deplorable uh, videos of oh, all yeah. the stuff in the oceans, and you, I just wonder. It is a problem about, about Maine, and, yeah. and is an agency telling these lobstermen to, to to hold on to it or get rid? I don't know. Some do, some don't. But uh, these midwater trawls probably don't get much plastic because most of the plastic stays at the surface. But um, okay. as, as far as I know, uh, that's a good question. We'll have to see if we can come up with a better answer. Okay, thank you. Catherine, never go to sea. I was I, uh, tell, telling this to some little girls the other day, had a water bottle and a Mylar balloon. Never go to sea without seeing a water bottle or a Mylar balloon. Uh, yeah, styrofoam cups and yeah. baby diapers. Um, we have another call from Fred in Tennis Harbor. Let's go to Fred. Good morning, Fred. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hey, 
Uh, wonderful to be hearing you, and uh, my conflict is over. And uh, I wanted to say some words about uh, the delivery of the Monhegan down to Rhode Island. Oh, yes. Fred did a, a delivery uh, see, last season. Absolutely. And the Monhegan, you say, the tour boat? The, the tour boat out of Rockland. And uh, I met the owner, Ray. I can't think of his name right now, but a wonderful man. Uh, gave me and a friend a tour of the engine room uh, three years ago or so when we were having a beer on board. And uh, the tour, the uh, delivery was perfect. Uh, good weather. Um, now, uh, Fred, let's back up a minute. Monhegan's, uh, I'm trying to picture, it's kind of a, kind of a ferry type of vehicle. Uh, you, you, it started out as a car ferry. Yeah, yeah, okay. So yeah. this is not your average, uh, like, say, extra large lobster yacht or anything. This is a commercial commercial right. vessel, yeah, yeah. with a real engine room. <laughs> and... Uh, and by the time, by the delivery time, it was a glass uh, wheelhouse, a uh, little tiny stick uh, for a uh, for a, to steer the boat by, and uh, um, I'll get to that in a minute. It just uh, was the perfect delivery of uh, boredom, of meeting people, uh, being out there, and overnight, and uh, good food. And just the right amount of excitement, uh, uh, 3 a.m., a uh, bunch of people in the wheelhouse, and I'm standing outside, and suddenly uh, the wheelhouse goes dark, uh, alarms go off, uh, <laughs> about all the instruments are dead, and the, the boat kind of, uh, the engine is cut, and we drift for a little while till, uh, um, and I'm, I'm looking at the shore, I see the lights ashore, and I'm thinking, you know, it won't take the Coast Guard long to get here if we need them. And, uh, but somebody, uh, um, connects the right wires or whatever underneath, and, uh, things start up again, and on we go. And, uh, next day, beautiful weather going into, what do you call, is it a bay or what, a Newport that is so huge with that uh, big island? In well, Newport Harbor, yeah. God. Like I say, it's a big basin. It sure is. And it, we went uh, we went up the eastern channel that you used to have a dam or a bridge that was, and, you know, lots of boats and people. And uh, then we delivered, and uh, the deal was done. And I'm so, so glad that I got on board. How many people on the boat? Oh, I'd say about 15 of us. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Human fenders. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Not all not all watchstanders that would uh, no, stand no, and steer no. the boat. Maybe, maybe, maybe not that, quite that many, but uh, a good crew. And um, uh, the, uh, Ray, is, Ray was no longer with us for that. Uh, his daughter, I believe, was the owner, and she... Uh, um, had uh, set it up to get it refurbished down at this uh, boatyard right down next to, uh, I don't remember the name of the little boatyard, which was next to Sperry and next to a big airport with military planes coming and going. Maybe you guys know that uh, that area. And uh, and then I was looking forward to a nice, quiet bus ride back up here. Uh and to sort of let the whole thing sink in. But instead, me and another guy got a rod with a hot rod, and we flew up here. Very uh, exciting trip. Uh, and um, got dropped off. and hopped eight, eight knots down, 80 back. 
<laughs> Literally true some of the time. Yeah. And um, so, like I said, perfect delivery. Very glad I got on board. And um, recommended uh, to most people, if you get the chance to do a boat delivery, uh, hop on. Yeah, just for just for the uh, just for the sunrise, if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Fred. Uh, talking about the size of uh, Newport Harbor, we were uh, looking one time for a boat there, a, a green sailboat. Uh huh. And the harbor, it was uh, just about dark, and uh, we get the launch guy, and there's several hundred, if not thousand. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we're we're running around looking for this thing, going, it could be over here, it could be over there, and and then we start talking, say, well, the guy that owns the boat is Swiss, and he's really tall, and he has a Dutch wife who always dresses only in black leather, and the launch guy goes, I know that woman, I know that boat. <laughs> oh, God. Ain't it the truth? And because of the Dutch woman in the black leather, took us right to the boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll end that story there. <laughs> we do have another call. All right. Fred. All right. Thanks so much. Thank, thanks for that great story, Fred. Let's go to Peter. Good morning, Peter. Welcome to Boat Talk. Peter of oh, Peter has left. He, he was laughing too hard and couldn't come back on me. He'll probably call back in a few minutes. All right. one We're also monitoring uh, boattalk.org for our um, boattalk at gmail.com. Boat he talk. does. I opened a computer one time while I was uh, on the radio, and I'm going to try never try it again. So uh, there's already enough confusion here. This book uh, was just mentioned in The Last Lobster, uh, written by Christopher White, who spent the uh, summer of 2016 down in Stonington with a bunch of our neighbors. Uh, the main theme of the boat, basically, uh, of the book, I would hate to say, is uh, the global warming. The, um, according to uh, his observations, the uh, fishery has peaked, and uh, it is heading down, and the uh, numbers overall uh, still seem to be good, but the last couple of summers... Um, the fishermen have been kind of sucking it, especially in the middle of the summer, um, not getting uh, uh, maybe half of what they would like to get in their traps. So um, he makes the point uh, quickly here. He says, uh, if one groups of uh, the monthly landings into the first half of the year and the last half of the year, a different picture arises. The winter-spring fishery had a huge increase, 45% counting for all of the annual rise in the lobster catch. Meanwhile, the summer-fall fishery decreased 2%. In other words, the winter lobstermen, bigger boats, warmer seas, um, you know, they are driving the annual catch into positive territory where the traditional summer fishermen are losing ground. And that is uh, a sense of the thing is changing. The center of lobster effort, he points out, goes 4.3 miles northeast every year. It's around Stonington now, and it Buy won't be. Buy your lobster roll now. And it won't be soon. Uh, yeah. Think of the price of lobster, too. Uh, so we have skyrocket. We have yeah, two more phone. calls. We're Let's give the phone number again. I got uh, off of it last time, one 625 We have Peter Neal back on the phone. I have an email also. But look, Good morning, Peter. Welcome good to morning, Boat Talk. Good morning, guys. How are you? Uh, real wet expert. It sounds like uh, bar talk more than boat talk. <laughs> well... Peter from the uh, World Ocean Observatory uh, heard what Wednesday mornings here on WERU. So just to bring the three callers together, actually, it's sort of interesting. Uh, climate affects the, 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 the general temperature and the, and the migration of the fisheries. That's number one. Number two, the, the self 
voluntary limitation where for the very almost the first time the fishermen and the scientists are together and agreeing on a management plan that re- actually requires a kind of moratorium uh, is pretty remarkable. That's what I thought. And then, th- and then third, um, the whole issue of bycatch, uh, which is something that just never really gets talked about enough in the sense that all of that protein is just wasted and thrown away. And there's never been a, there's never been a good system for monetizing that in a way uh, other than to essentially possibly require everybody that whatever they take on board, they keep on board and they figure out a way to monetize it. In Iceland, for example, they use 100% of the fish. So they don't allow for any um, waste, waste at all. And then one final point to the woman who called about plastic. They may not have any plastic in the net per se, but the fish have plastic inside them already. And herring would be a pretty good example of fish that would have ingested microbees from plastic, and it would be in their system, and then it would be transferred uh, into however the use might be in terms of eating herring, um, which is a great fish to eat. Uh, that would transfer into our bodies. So the plastic issue is not just the Clorox bottle that's floating on the, on the surface. Yeah, it does break up in, like, say, uh, mini pieces. I'm now told polar fleeces uh, also floating around in, in the ocean, too, and I don't want to give it up. Peter, can you comment on this for me real quick? This is uh, from the Bangor Daily News um, editorial page, Gwyn Dyer, the facts from uh, climate scientists. And two articles in Nature, one of the world's leading scientific journals, uh, just published that the Gulf Stream is slowing down. In fact, it is now moving more slowly than any time in the past 1,600 years, which is as far back as studies go. They're saying that it might have slowed down 15% in the last 100 years. Well, if you're going to ask me the answer to why that is, I'm not going to be very, very helpful. I think it has a lot to do with temperature, and I think it has a lot to do with how how currents uh, are interacting around around the the earth globally, uh, and that current has always been this sort of uh, concentrated concentrated force, and it's a it's a combination of elements that created that force. If those elements are changing on either side or at the outset, then that would have an effect, I think, on the on the stream, and and then that has an enormously important uh, impact on fisheries and weather. Uh, uh, and all the rest. So, you know, it's all connected. And, and when we try to deny one piece of it or another, uh, that, that the denial falls apart when you look at the next step or the next step or the next step after that. So if you don't want to call it climate change, you can call it changing climate. And those things require mitigation, adaptation, and re- an inventive response uh, to how we've behaved and organized ourselves uh, in the past. And when the when when lobstermen and fishermen start observing this, because remember they're they're scientists, they're out there observing in, in ways just like native people have observed for for centuries, um, just like scientists who do it in a slightly different vocabulary. But when they agree on something, and then realize that everybody's interests are advanced by an adaptation or a shift or a change in behaviors, that's a great thing. And it doesn't get regulated. It's not imposed from on high the way fisheries management has, has been perceived in the past. So my, the argument here is that 
as conditions change, we need to be smart enough to respond in time. And that's a that's a that's a caveat that is basically ocean wide at almost every level of of its impact on our lives. All right, Th- thank you very much, Peter. We do have another phone call we need to go to, but going, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again. Thanks again, Peter Neal. Uh, we have a, con- a phone call from the Coast Guard, so let's go to that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hi, good morning. Uh, Lieutenant Pete Franson here from the Coast Guard. Thanks for having me. Yes, uh, we we were talking earlier about the theft of uh, the bell buoys and clappers. Isn't that what you're going to talk about? Yes, sir, that's correct. Uh, currently, uh, it's up to seven uh, sound signaling devices that have been stolen and these sound signaling devices, they play a critical role to help mariners navigate safely during times of restricted visibility. So it's whistles also then, huh? Uh, bells, bells and gongs. Gongs. How are they being removed, unbolted or cut? Correct. They're being, uh, they're being unbolted and uh, taken from the, the buoys. Huh. And a wide geographical uh, from Harpswell to Bar Harbor, more or less, true? It's up and down the main coast. Uh, we have a, a larger concentration in Penobscot Bay, uh, but currently federal law enforcement officers are actively investigating with the assistance of state uh, law enforcement officers as well uh, to identify the perpetrators. So you have any uh, any good leads yet? Have you found uh, any scrap dealers or antique dealers that have been helpful? Uh, at, at present time, I mean, that. You know, law enforcement, they're, they're still conducting uh, searches, and uh, like you mentioned, they are looking into scrap dealers. They are looking into, uh, you know, stores that uh, sell it as novelty items. Um, but, you know, the biggest thing that, that we're asking at present time is uh, the assistance of the public to help identify. And uh, if the public has any information, we're requesting that they contact our, our sector command center. And the number is 207 207- Seven six seven zero three zero three. Such an offense. It's a federal offense. It's punishable up to twenty five thousand dollars per mm-hmm. offense, and also uh, may be subject to a year's worth of jail time. Um, but if there's any information that the public has that can lead to a successful conviction, the public, uh, the reporting source is entitled to, to up to half of the penalty amount. So we're we're hoping that. Uh, we're hoping that the public can provide additional details to to help us uh, identify and, and you know put this to a close. Let's talk about buoys for a second, Lieutenant. Uh, you know they uh, have a function; they're mostly signposts, and uh, as I like to think, they protect rocks from boats. You know, sure. um, how many? And the Coast Guard uh, manages the buoys, uh, buoy tenders. You uh, place them, maintain them. Uh, how many buoys on the coast of Maine? Figure more or less. Oh, uh, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how many how many buoys we have off the coast of Maine. Thousands, anyway. I say thousands, yeah. Yeah, and again, a uh, bunch of different kinds. Uh, uh, some are signposts, a uh, midwater uh, red and white one that's out in the middle of uh, good water. You know, shows you where you are. But uh, uh, you know, the green and the red ones they show you where the rocks are. They're on. Uh, protecting that rock pile from you running into it with your boat and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, electronic navigation nowadays, uh, we were talking earlier, makes things uh, 
that's a great time to be a mariner. But the uh, sound of the bell buoy, the uh, foghorn, uh, still valuable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And critical in those times, especially under those times of restrictive visibility and preventing, uh, you know, harm to uh, mariners and vessels. Mariners need as many clues as possible when doubt comes down. I can, I, it seems uh, boggling to me that anybody would go through the effort it must take to tie up to a buoy, which they're not really made to tie up to, and then clamber on board and unbolt these gear. No, certainly. It's, it's, it's a, not easy. It's a huge effort to do that. And, uh, you know, additionally, for, for our personnel, there are safety practices that they have to follow when they're making those repairs. And that's the other piece to it. Our, our primary concern is the safety of the mariners, um, you know, the safety of our, our waterways. But secondary, for our personnel to get out there and have to conduct maintenance, that requires us to get a buoy tender underway, a crew underway. So that brings with it an additional expense to the taxpayer. All right, so uh, and you couldn't steal a buoy bell unless you were a mariner, which is again, uh, it's not like uh, people who don't care are taking the damn things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you this morning. Uh, we always like the coasties. Uh, yes, thank you for what you do. Um, why did you uh, choose the Coast Guard, Lieutenant? I chose the Coast Guard because I, I fell in love with the mission. You know, it it it's a great mission. It's uh we serve the public, and uh, you know, there's no other. Uh, you know, everybody everybody has an opportunity to uh, to serve. Um, but uh, I feel that the Coast Guard we have we have closer ties to our public, closer ties to our community than any of the other services. Job satisfaction fairly good for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, you're making a career of it. How long you been in? Where are you from? Oh gosh, it's been about. Uh, it'll be nine years coming this coming up July, and um, originally from uh, Rhode Island, so uh, uh, New England ties run deep. Yeah. Well, uh, keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Thank you very Thank much, you. Yeah. Thank you for. Having me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was uh, we Lieutenant Franzen, but couldn't be sure. Yeah. Uh, Let's go right to that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hey. Good morning there. I just heard earlier that the, they were speaking of uh, Newport Harbor. Been there quite a few times. A large airport with CF3. But uh, I've been listening to Boat Talk for quite a while. Maybe we got to bring up uh, one show about the uh, largest fleet that went to Newport Harbor in 1781. 1781. Uh, the war was on. Yes, the French fleet. Right. French Baker. Right, right, right. Admiral De, Admiral De He's actually buried in Newport. All right. They, they had an 80-ship gun, ship of the line. They had a couple of 64s and a few 50s. Boy. And without... Not only that, the statue of Rochambeau is right outside of Fort Adams. And, and his son went over to France from America on that Le Hermoyne, the one that was here in, in Blue Hill last uh, at Castine last summer. And without the sea power of the French, uh, Washington could have chased the British all over the eastern seaboard. And, and uh, to no great effect, uh, the sea power was the difference. Yeah, we should have a show about that on Boat Talk. That's an excellent idea. We Historical appreciate, Boat Talk, yes. Appreciate the uh, suggestion. Who was, who was speaking with this morning? Donald. Uh, I was a uh, Revolutionary War reenactor myself for 20 years. Oh, no kidding. And what yeah. kind of part did you play, Donald? Went to France. I was a French artillerist. No kidding. French artillery. Yeah. Well, yeah, I went to the Treaty of Versailles and everything. And uh, we were in Paris. We did shows. 
Nice. It was was pretty good. At the end of the bicentennial, we were in the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles. We were on French TV. We were Americans that were invited there. We did a show for Reagan in in Yorktown in 1781, 1981. Nice. For the end of Yorktown. Nice. Time. That's why I'm I'm saying that that Newport Harbor is full of history. Time tripper. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, thank you very much, Donald. Thanks. I have a one one quick. Uh, I got to throw one more thing into you. Okay. Go first. Um, okay, this one's going to be a, people can help us by going to the boattalk.org website and putting in an answer there. Silas wants to know that he says the um, Pettit has stopped making underwater seam compounds. So what do we use to uh, substitute for that? He says slick seam. I don't like slick seam. It's wax or polyurethane. We've talked yeah. about that. Uh, I don't know about a good substitute for underwater seam compound that the Pettit used to use over the cotton, you know. I read in The Last Lobster that if you run out of herring, you can use cat food or uh, uh, tuna fish, but I don't know uh, about putting it in the seam of the boat. But here's, let's go out on a hopeful uh, climate change note. The NASA administrator, Jim Bridenstine, was a longtime climate denier. He's Oklahoma boy. He was an Oklahoma congressman like uh, Mr. Pruitt there and of the same ilk. He is now the NASA administrator, and now that he leads a federal agency that conducts a lot of research about conditions on Earth, the former congressman says he understands that climate change is happening and that humans are causing it. I heard a lot of experts, and I read a lot, Bridenstine told the Washington Post. I came to the conclusion myself. Carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. We put a lot of it into the atmosphere, and therefore we have contributed to the global warming. And we've done it in a really significant way. Several years ago, Bridenstine, a conservative three-term representative from Oklahoma, denied all of the above. And uh, like I say, now he's running NASA and is uh, uh, open to the scientific... uh, To being fired. You know, evidence and... uh, (laughs) So anyway. Time time to go. The hour sailed by. Thanks to Amy Brown down in the engine room. I used to buy the bins of boat and I used to buy the sail, sir. I used to buy the catches of fish and take some home to lie, sir.